Hey, Marion, uh, I was at the gym the other day, busting out some reps, minding my own business, and a man came over to me and he went, uh, hello, mate, can you spot me for a second? And I went, yeah, you're just there. Hey, everybody, it's a Lovecraft show. My name's Mr. Xditch. <laughs> and I'm Marion. Crikey, that was a very gym-specific joke, only a Jamie Dad joke. Shout out to all the gym. Honestly, if I went near a gym, that would be a great story, but as anyone who's seen me lately... Uh, yeah, well, I, here, I, I tried different dad's joke just for people who aren't gym bunnies. What do you call a chicken that is afraid of the dark? I don't know. What do you call a chicken that's afraid of the dark? A chicken. Hey, everybody, it's still the Lovecraft show. <laughs> I love the pause. I'm trying to get to, with these jokes, I'm trying to get to a pause that's long enough for me to literally say, Hey, everybody, it's Mr. Exitch. Uh, welcome to the Lovecraft show before you even laugh. Such is the echo of it. But there. you never do because I always laugh because they're just ridiculous. They're so I love good, them. Aren't they? Uh you're looking well. You where have you been lately? Well, do you know what? I I'm not a person that has many holidays. Um, but I've just had an extremely lovely three days away with the with the immense Debbie Bliss. Mm. Um I took my beautiful children to mm. visit Debbie and her husband Barry uh to Italy. And we went, we flew in, flew into Pisa and then we drove down to San Gimignano, which is their favourite town. And then we've spent three days eating pasta, gelato and Barry Bliss, who's a great artist, talking us through the frescoes in all the churches. And it was absolutely magical. I can't remember the last time I had a holiday, so it was just a little break and it was divine. There's something I can't quite understand about Italy, but how they do what they do so very well. Like I've been to Florence and I've been to Sicily and both times just being like, oh my God, you know, like, so when we went to Florence, Mary and I, in the early days of our courtship, we, uh, one of the things we did was a tour called Florence for Foodies. And it was amazing. Mm. It was like the best thing we ever did because it was about four hours and the lady took us we went to a coffee shop and we learned about Italian coffee culture. We went to the market and we sampled various goods from the market. We went to, um, I want to say a pasta shop, I think. And then, no, we didn't go to a pasta shop. We went to a wine shop. That's why I can't remember the pasta shop. And then we also ended up at a tiny gelato place <laughs> that was just off a side street somewhere. But all of the food was so amazing. And just to get under the skin of the culture and understand intrinsically what it was, so then when we went to Sicily, we were like, right, we've got to do some cooking course. And we did this cooking course with a lady where we learned to make ravioli and we learned to make cannoli. Oh, my God. Cannoli. Oh, yeah. And Delicious. before that, we'd like been around a market and picked all the veg. And then you get that you get that spirit, don't you? Like, I can do this. You, you go, ah, oh, I've seen the Italians, little bit of pasta, chop up a tomato, chuck in a bit of onions, bit of olive oil, bish, bash, bosh, and it comes out lovely. And then you come home and do it and it's just not there. So I had this conversation actually with Debbie and I was saying the thing is that in Italy when they make you these beautiful things they're using Italian water, Italian flour, Italian tomatoes that are grown in the Italian sun. You know, you come back to Blighty <laughs> and we have tomatoes that don't taste of anything, water that's probably pumped full of chemicals, not very particularly nice flour. You know, it just doesn't work the same way. And I think that's why when you're there you just have to be inspired and eat all the pasta and eat all the gelato and it's amazing i'll tell you what which was fascinating um with barry going around the looking at the frescoes and things was that 
he's an artist and you know he he knows a lot about the history of art and things but he was saying to us as we were looking at all these incredible paintings from anywhere between the sort of 1100s up to 1800s that people were painted in what they wore you know so when you see these paintings of people in these very elaborate dresses and wits and bobs of course they were painting what they were wearing at the time so that's how you can date these things but these we're so used to seeing sort of period dramas on the telly and the sort of Game of Thrones and all these sort of films and things with the Tudors and people wearing all these costumes. But the reality is that they were, I know this sounds silly, but they really were wearing those things. <laughs> and they really were wearing these enormous, heavily embroidered, heavily handcrafted, beautiful clothes. Mm. Um, and they're painted up there on the walls of the churches for you to see. And you think, actually... <laughs> That it's like having a photograph taken now in what you're wearing today. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. the same thing. They were painted in what they wore. The other thing that interests me is um, there is this difference between um, the paintings that could be achieved and, for instance, the reproductions in textiles. There's a book called The History of Colour in Textiles, which I may have mentioned before. And there was this thing where if they wanted to make a tapestry, so say they painted a picture of a lady in a dress and her dress was blue and her hair was green or whatever, they wouldn't necessarily be able to do the same thing in tapestry because they didn't have the colour technology at the time. And I always think that was quite fascinating because you, you, depending on the medium sometimes you got like a false truth because they simply couldn't make the thing look the way it was supposed to look because they didn't have the tech no and you think all these sort of crushed up lapis lazuli mixed up with a bit of egg white and a bit of olive oil uh you know to paint things on and uh, yes they weren't able necessarily to dye the threads to match but these incredible tapestries embroideries cross stitches this is leading us on very neatly to the guest that we have today. Jamie, tell us about this most extraordinary woman that we're going to talk to. Yeah, it's super exciting for me today because we're meeting uh, one of my favourite people and someone who is basically a cross-stitch legend. There are a few legends in cross-stitch. Obviously, I'm one of them. I think I can hear everybody nodding in agreement with that fact. But <laughs> no, we're, we're talking to Jane Greenoff today, who's been a cross-stitch designer since the 1980s, part of a real amazing era when cross-stitch in the 1990s was super popular and it's just she's just she's been around for a long time she's absolutely lovely she's got loads of tales to tell um i think it's going to be a really good one and it's just a great opportunity to talk someone who's been been around the block come back done an attractive cross stitch sampler of the block and then gone back around the block again so hopefully people enjoy it should we crack on let's go and say hello tell us about uzbekistan because it sounds amazing it was amazing. We were due to go with Arena Travel because we were taking a party of stitchers to Uzbekistan for 15 nights and a very intensive trip. In retrospect, I suppose I don't regret that it didn't happen because it, they didn't have enough people. It was an expensive trip to take. And of course, when it was launched, January, February, the cost of living thing was becoming very evident, and eating bills, etc. And also, a country ending in the word stan does make a lot of people terribly nervous, you know, with Afghanistan and Pakistan and, 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 and. Anyway, we had done quite a lot of research because we were taking the group, and they said, right, we're going anyway. So we just took a week. The trip that we looked at 
had actually gone up £400 each by the time we came to do it. So a week was plenty. And it was it was marvellous. I mean, we arrived at three o'clock in the morning, it was back time, and the sun was just coming up. And we all went to bed for a couple of hours, and then we toured Tashkent, where we landed. And then we went on and saw Samarkand and Bukhara, and it was marvellous, fabulous. Very hot, 37 in the shade. So walking about, you know, the hats and sun cream and, and whatnot. But yeah, it's fabulous. The architecture, the people, the food, everything was super. Yeah. Yeah. Can you explain like more about, because you said about the tiles and stuff, and I guess we all, you jumped to Middle Eastern conclusions, but can you dig into it a bit? Yes. Well, because I knew I would be designing things based on, I thought I'd probably design things having been to Uzbekistan. But if you imagine the mosques, of which, of course, there are many, there's a new one being built at the moment, which is bigger than the last one because the new ruler needs a bigger one. It's like my ship's bigger than your ship sort of conversation going on. So the mosques are being built and the walls are covered in tiles, a lot of wonderful blue tiles, not only blue, but a lot of blue. And there are madrasas, which are the sort of ancient schools that were there to learn about religion and life and, and, and. They're covered in tiles. And the prayer hats worn by the men, I didn't realise this till quite late in the trip, so they can fold flat and go in your dean's pocket, the top's square. So they're tiles, you know, they're square. So it's, if any of you listening, just put Uzbekistan into Google or something, and you'll automatically get the main square picture in Samarkand. My personal favourite was Bukhara, but that's partly because we stayed in a small old hotel in the centre of the old town. So if I walked across a road, there was a beautiful building covered in blue tiles. Mm. You know, so it was um, as a design thing. The other part of the equation is that embroidery is very much in evidence. A lot of prayer hats are embroidered, many in cross-stitch. I can, in fact, get one in a minute and show it to you because we were donated hats to wear for a particular dinner party. Then the colours are not of my choice, shall we say. <laughs> but anyway, we were given these prayer hats. Yes, it was um, It was a very, very nice trip. Very hot, uh, quite tiring. I hate to say it, but I felt my 73 years, slightly more than I usually do, tramping up and down steps to look at mosques and um, mausoleums, etc. But it was marvellous. I wouldn't have missed it for the world. It sounds incredible. It sounds it just sounds absolutely beautiful. There is this incredible inspiration from tiles, isn't there? Everywhere in so many countries, beautiful tiles, beautiful designs, beautiful ceilings, beautiful yes. repeat motifs that everywhere you go, you know, me as a knitter, I think, oh, we could we could replicate that as a fair We could do, you know, and I just love these sort of repeat motifs and and just the designs in in general, they're incredible. I mean, that must have been incredibly inspirational for you in terms of creating a collection or something. It was. And this is the funny thing, because officially, as I've said before, I retired in 2017, which is obviously become a family joke. But I had the business, the Crossage Guild moved up to Warrington to Andrea's. And, and I have to say, she's making a cracking job of it. 
and I was going to work with and for her for two years as part of the arrangement. But of course, the arrangement has extended long beyond that. And I'm very aware of the, the predicament I would be in mentally if I didn't have somewhere to put all this stuff in my brain. Because everywhere I go, I see things that would be interesting in a pattern or, or a shape or something that I could turn into something. I mean, my husband and I went to see Matthew Rice's garden in Bampton at the weekend. He is a, an artist and author. And his other claim to fame is being the ex-husband of Emma Bridgewater. But, um, <laughs> I mean... I have a couple of books of his. He, yes. He's an incredible artist. He's yes. wonderful. Well, and they're so, they're so him, you know. And the joy of the visit was that he met us at the door and took us round. And, I mean, I hadn't taken the books with me to get them signed because it didn't cross my mind that he would actually be in evidence. But that's a building, you know, the building and the flower beds. It was, yes, you're just scribbling notes all the time. <laughs> of course, these days with mobile phones being so clever, I can take snapshots just for my memory, you know. I mean, his vegetable garden, the greenhouse. I mean, whoa, it was just amazing. <laughs> But what would I do if I wasn't working? I couldn't put them all into my own cross stitches because we couldn't move. So I'm lucky. This is the thing about having, well, I suppose it must be the same for lots of people to their jobs, but when you have a creative job, it just doesn't switch off, does it? It's if it's an artistic creative path sort of in your soul that goes through like a stick of rock and you can't yes, yes. just, you can't switch it off, can you? No, no. But I want to know though, Jane, for the people listening who who might not have, I mean, extraordinarily might not have come across you before, but I think that's highly <laughs> unlikely. So having had a look, your introduction to cross-stitch and embroidery happened when you were young, when you were a nurse. Is that right? Well, yes, yes and no is the answer to that. The actual thing that we're talking about today started in 1983, stroke two. 82, 83, when we moved to the Cotswolds. But in retrospect, I didn't remember this until quite recently. And it just shows what things come when you're old like I am, things come back to you from deep in the past. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I had a Marks and Spencer's jumper that I succeeded in getting a, a coffee stain roughly central on the chest. And somehow or other, I got an idea to embroider on top of it to cover this up and did an Eiffel Tower in cross-stitch. Now, I have no idea where that came from because I didn't do any more. That was that one incident which must have been, I don't know, I'm going to say 45 years ago. It's 40 years. I mean, Bill broke it to me this week. When I said, oh, I've been doing this 30 years now, he said, you haven't, you've been doing it 40. And that came as a terrible shock. I couldn't believe it. So I actually, I was nursing and retired to have my son, James, and expected to go back to work at, in some way. And I was a nurse teacher at that time at the Royal Barks in Reading. And this was before the degree course became the way forward. And it was when you started and you did six weeks in introductory course, and then you went on the wards and you learned your trade. I'm not commenting on that in any way. Okay. No. I'm not going to be political at all. So I started at 16 as a cadet nurse in Hastings and wasn't allowed on the wards yet. 
Um, I worked in outpatients, x-ray, you know, everywhere. And at 17, I went on to the ward as a cadet nurse. And then at 18, I started training to be a state registered nurse and qualified in 21. And so when we moved to the Cotswolds, my contact with the Royal Banks had obviously gone. My boss had said to me, would I do one night a week on the wards? Because nurses have to do practical examinations and they could do them on night duty. There's no reason why they couldn't. So if I did one night a week, they could give me a list of nurses who had things they needed doing or nurses who needed talking to or whatever, whatever. So that opportunity had gone. And so I was being a mum. I think James was 11 months old when we moved. And we bought a cottage, which was very exciting for me. It had wibbly wobbly walls and you could brain yourself on the beams in the, in the attic. In fact, my GP, this one occasion when my husband came up to me in bed very poorly and found the GP on the bed with me and he'd actually hit his head <laughs> on the beam. I said, mind your bang. Anyway, <laughs> yes, so we bought a cottage and, and that was that. So I was shown cross-stitch by my neighbour. In our, I was an in terrace cottage, and she was in a converted chapel between me and the next house. And um, we had children of similar age. Her husband was in the forces and away a lot, and we were having coffee. And, and I commented on a piece of stitching that was on the back of the sofa, sort of just lying there. And so, oh, you're going to frame it? It's lovely. And she said, well, I've got another alphabet to put on yet. And I mean, I was brought up with transfers. So this blank fabric... And so she said, well, you count the threads. And I couldn't see the threads, I'll be honest. Anyway, <laughs> that was it, really. I remember it very clearly because James was wearing a yellow all-in-one suit of fluffy stuff with a plastic feet in and a zip up the front. And I think I'd changed him that morning, but he certainly waited to be changed again till I'd stitched a strawberry. Oh, wow. Okay. Badly. <laughs> and it's funny, she never said, it's nice if the crosses face the same way. Right. So, I mean, it was a bad strawberry. <laughs> but, I mean, it was just like a light bulb for me. Extraordinary thing. So that was that, really. I was fascinated. And not more than a week later, she'd come back from shopping and seen a little sampler, counted sampler for sale in the shop that was closing down in Cheltenham, and bought it for me. So there you go, do that. So I did. It was on linen, quite loosely woven linen and I did that if I was awake right you know and then another maybe a month passed and she came in to see me to say always oh, look at this she had a copy of woman's realm now I don't even know that still exists but <laughs> not sure there was a letter from somebody who was doing a mail order cross stitch business and I remember the name I've never found the person it was called Clover Kits. Right. And she said, I don't make any money, but I have managed to replace the dining room carpet. <laughs> now, it was so weird because one of my priorities in life was to change the carpet in the dining room. And it was like it was a sort of message, you know. It was really weird. Anyway, so Jane Wallace, as she was then, and I started chapel samplers that, that evening. Wow. I persuaded Bill. Well, I actually broke it to Bill. I needed £50. You see, my month's housekeeping was 100 and we were skint. I mean, I, I wasn't working. Um, we'd moved. Um, there are no buses in Fairford. You know, it's, it's very challenging then. 
So, yes, it, this 50 quid was found from somewhere and we had a bank account. Five metres of fabric and quite a lot of skeins of thread. Mm. And that was the beginning. Do you say that was like a fortnight after you first did it? Yes, I hadn't designed anything. <laughs> but you started a business within two weeks of trying it. Jane was going to do the designs. Okay. <laughs> I was going to stitch that. It was all very... Bill made the only thing about it is the sort of lessons you look back on and think, gosh. He said, you, you have a proper agreement written down together of what you want to do and and you never need a contract till you row. And that is such a true, you know, I've said this so many times in my life to people. You don't need it. Of course you don't. You know, I know your friends, but you just never know what's going to happen in a business. Many years later, I was having dinner, sorry, tea, afternoon tea, with the chairman of Rolls-Royce and his wife, Barbie, as one does. There's another story about that in a minute. And he said, don't take a partner unless you're sleeping with him regularly. And I said, I beg your pardon? And he said, partnerships, remember, when you get a person, you get their family too. And it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Partnerships are... Any partnership in life has its challenges, inevitably. You know, I know when my GP and his practice were looking for a new partner, he said it's like choosing a wife or a husband because it can make such problems if it doesn't work. Yeah. I feel very fortunate to end up with a podcast wife like Marion, to be honest. We seem to work quite well despite all the challenges. So Good. She's a good egg. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Thanks very much. I feel very privileged to be a good egg. That's very nice. Jane learnt cross stitch from a neighbour. Cross stitch the strawberry two weeks later, had a business with the neighbour doing cross stitch samples. The kind of entrepreneurship that people is the stuff of legend. And I, she designed a sampler, and I'm saying that, bless her, she's no longer with us, this young woman, which is very, very sad. But what she did was she copied things out of other people's work, really. In retrospect, you look back and think, oh, I, do you know, I've seen that somewhere. Oh, Lord. So there was an enormous amount to learn. Um, of our 50 quid each we put in the kitty, we spent £28 plus VAT on an advertisement in the Cotswold Life magazine and waited for the sacks of mail. <laughs> and, of course, nothing happened. Mm. <laughs> and so quite soon after this, my partner, who's also a Jane, said, actually, I don't want to do this. Can you buy me out? Hence the little letter that my husband had insisted we had between us. So I did. So, I mean, she, I got the stuff that we had, a cardboard box of stuff. <laughs> and she got the rest of the bank account and we closed the bank account. And, and I sat scratching my head. I'd borrowed a drawing board from a neighbour was resting on two bricks on the dining room table. And I'd bought a chart or graph paper and rotaring pens. And then I scratched my head quite a lot because obviously I'd never drawn anything. But um, it was Bill's suggestion, actually. There was a little coffee shop in Sirencester that had people's work on the walls as decoration, but also for sale. He said, why don't you design things that you could put in little frames and sell them? And so I designed three samplers. Loosely phrased, designed, you know, <laughs> alphabets, little houses, um, sort of sampler trees, very, yeah, very simplistic, really. 
And uh, the plan was to go and put them on the wall in this coffee bar. Anyway, one spring morning, well, not spring, winter morning, really, I had the car for the day. This was a big thing. And so it meant that I put my son in a car seat and bribed him with Watsits or whatever the equivalent junk food was in those days. And I went on a selling spree. I still can't believe it. And I took my three work pieces and I packed them up into bags and put them in a carrier bag, hang them on the side of the buggy and set off to Burford in Oxfordshire. Found a shop I like the look of. It is a beautiful place. And I said, <laughs> I said to this woman, Barbara, her name was, 43 years ago, I said to her, yeah, I would let you have my entire range. You know, and she said, um, ah, well, yes, but I'd like you to do a design of Burford Church for me and I'd like it exclusive. Ooh. And I said, of course. Now, I don't know if you know Burford, but it's the largest church in Oxfordshire and there is nowhere apart from an aircraft where you can get a photograph because it's in the middle. Anyway, I took about 19 snaps, cut them up and stuck them together. <laughs> <laughs> And she bought my entire range. She bought one of Burford, uh, designed of Burford, and the other three. Because I think it's worth, I want to just point out to people who may not really appreciate this. We're talking pre-computers here. We're talking hand-drawing graphs here. We're talking photocopying things, aren't we? We're talking all of that kind of... Chip X and little squares of paper. If you make a mistake, you cut out a piece of graph paper that matches and stick it on with print stick. I mean, as I live and breathe now, you can appreciate it was a very different world. Oh, I mean, and everything took so long. Yes. This is the thing. I don't think people realise how manual it was no. to do these things. Now when they can just sort of pop things into their software and generate, you know, a chart. Patterns. Yes, yes. But you, you just couldn't do that then. You were just sitting there colouring in. Yes, and in fact, I didn't even colour in. You, that's a very interesting point, Marianne, because, I mean, I, all of this is, it makes me laugh now. I designed in symbols, which is weird, okay? Retrospectively, it's weird. So a cross would be the darker green, a V would be the lighter green, an L would be a paler green, <gasps> and lines with dots in. So I had a range of symbols. So obviously I couldn't use that many colours because I had to, the symbol had to be decipherable. But I usually, well, I could see what it looked like. This is, if I have a skill, this is what's in there. This is a girl who, almost secondary modern, where my father sent me after I failed my 11 plus, having sent me through prep school to get me organised properly. I went to Warmersec and after two years, or maybe three my mother was told I was a waste of space in needlework and I should, should stop wasting her money and her time, my mother's money and her time. And, of course, the only thing I excelled at was technical drawing. But girls didn't do it after they were 14, so I had to give it up. So, I mean, I, I remember every exercise I did had an, a red A on it, every exercise. But that's at a time when boys didn't do cooking and girls didn't do metalwork. I mean, we are talking 60s here. Yes, yes. You know, things have changed out of all recognition, obviously, and, and rightly so. But it does make me chuckle retrospectively. And I said to my mother once, I think the only thing I'd be good at would be tracing things, you know. Well, actually, in, in a way, I'd sometimes trace things. If I take a picture of a flower that's complicated, 
I might well put it on my light box and draw some of the outline. I don't scan in anything, but only because on the only occasion I did, I scanned in a Victorian tile and was very pleased with it. And Bill walked into my office and said, oh, have you scanned that? I said, yes, and it's going in the bin. <laughs> because that made the point that it was so different from what I normally did. Yeah. Was there a moment when you realised, like, this technical drawing reflection? And was there a moment when you realised that? Because design skills are a thing you kind of have to learn. I just wonder whether there was a point when suddenly some of this stuff clicked in and you were like, okay, these are principles of design. These are the things that work. These are things that don't. I'm not sure I'm that clever. <laughs> I, you know, I, I know that some of my early things I look at and I think, oh, dear, that wasn't very good. And I, I mean, still now I'll do think I'll draw things and think that isn't going to work and it gets spinned. I don't know. I don't actually know what the technique is. I just have, I suppose I have gut feeling, really. Sometimes I go to draw something. When I say draw, if, if there's sort of two categories, really, sometimes I go straight onto my design program and I doodle and things turn up, often not what I was intending. Sometimes I will print off the squared paper from the cross-stitch program. I don't know what's wrong with my Wi-Fi, but yeah. If you would, yeah. If I had a picture frame I liked and thought that would work for a design that was in my head, I would work out how many stitches it was across and I would draw the box and I would print that box on a piece of paper. And then I sit and scribble on, my gra on, my, on the graph paper. And then I transfer whatever I end up with into the back stitch on the screen these days. And I colour that in with the palette. I mean, I used to colour in with crayons and I still have them. Some of them are about, you know, two inches long now where I've sharpened them and sharpened them. But I don't use crayon at all. I do it straight from a line drawing on the graph paper and then transfer that in backstitch, save it as something so I don't lose it. And then that's how I colour it in. So I don't know if that answers your question or not now. No, no, no. But it's interesting because you put limitations on yourself. I was thinking before, when you're just like writing symbols, there's only going to be so many colours in your head that you can apply. So you're already, there's a restriction. Mm. And for a lot of people and in a lot of circumstances, it's like if you say to someone, draw anything, they'll stare blankly at you. If you say draw an elephant on a unicycle, suddenly they can go for it because the limitations give them freedom. Yes, blank sheets always start people looking nervous. As for writers and authors and everything, my son's just in the final part of his master's and he had a blank sheet, you know, and it was driving him mad. Now that he's not got it blank anymore, it's happening. But he had a few weeks of, oh. Yes, so interesting that having got back to my machine again, I had a day when I really struggled. Right. I didn't... Just getting back in the groove. You know, there was definitely a... I'm not going to pretend as a muse or anything like that, but I was scratching about, not really being very productive. And then I suppose about six o'clock, I got a cup of coffee in the evening and I suddenly went into the library in, in the barn at the back. I thought, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a great big bookcase. Right. And that was it. But, you know, I don't often sit there unable to do anything because usually there's a piece of paper somewhere with nine ideas on it. But sometimes, you you know, you can't get started. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Fake it till you make it. And, Jane, how often do you find yourself just being able to sit and stitch? 
Well, I would every evening if I got away with it, but I don't. Um, <laughs> I do stitch. It's difficult to say because I've got two hats, you see, or even three maybe. So I design for Andrea and most of that stitching is sent out to my colleagues who stitch for me, partly because they're really good and hard on me and correct the charts properly. Otherwise, anything could happen. And if I stitch, I change my mind. I don't change the chart. So, you know, things can go horribly wrong. So when I'm at a sort of deadline for design, say, for our January magazine, then I will send the work out to be stitched and I get it back to add and play with and whatever. And I have a team who've been absolutely brilliant, some for years, and they'll ring me if there's something obviously terribly wrong. Otherwise, they just correct it and write notes for me. So going back to me stitching, my treasures site, which I started after I retired, lets me play. And there I'm stitching and I don't have to write instructions mm. because there's only going to be one. And that is an incredibly freeing thing. So, yes, that's what I was thinking, sort of, you know, just stitching for pure pleasure without yeah. without an agenda. Yeah. Tell us about the treasures. Well, that was, again, one of the accidents or serendipitous moments, really. I had um, I bought janegreenoff.com a long time ago. If only to stop someone else getting it. I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but I'm, I that was told... Jane Greenoff, honestly, she's a There terror. isn't. Yes, I know. <laughs> my evil twin, my husband refers to her as. <laughs> <laughs> so I bought Jane Greenoff.com, which time to take me. You know, nobody else wanted it anyway. Having then in Greenoff, of course, was extremely fortunate because there are no others, well, apart from my son. So you find me fairly quickly on Google, which is obviously great. Anyway, so I bought janegreenoff.com, the intention being that when I did finish, I could keep stocks of my own titles and sell them as signed books. You know, people could ring me up and say I'd like a cross-stitches Bible or something, and I would sign them and dedicate them. And that was genuinely what I was thinking. And then it sort of cooked a bit, and then gradually, as time got on, Jenny Dixon, who I know you know, mm -hmm. um, future publishing days... <laughs> She came for a meeting. She's the Guild, Crustage Guild editor. She came for a meeting with our computer wizard and photographers and whatnot. And she said, you need to be a finder of treasures. I said, I'm sorry. That's what you need to be. You need to be a finder of treasures. Because then when you find little antique bits and pieces, or you could sell them. <laughs> no. I mean, it was absolutely out of the blue. And she said, Jane, you know, so we'll get a little website and you can find things to sell people. <laughs> and it sounded like a dream come true to me because in theory that means you can go shopping for work. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really, and to give you a, the extreme end of that then, Uzbekistan, I haven't got one at hand to show you, in Bukhara, there are many blacksmiths and many stork scissors because the stork used to come to Bukhara before the swamps were drained. And it was very much a bird that was seen on all the top of the buildings. And stork scissors were the midwife's magic tool. And I found some very interesting steel stork scissors and then said to Bill, right, OK, this is a business expense. So I bought 25 pairs. And then we searched 
right. for antique tassels. And I've sold them all. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is these things... It's lovely. It's just they are treasures. And yes. I mean, I absolutely urge anyone listening to go and have a look on janegreenoff.com and have a look at the treasures because they are beautiful. But they are treasures because they are, they've been created lovingly by someone somewhere. Yes. And that's the best word actually for them, isn't it? They're treasures. Jenny, Jenny was so clever. She, and I mean, she's written words with me. I mean, she, we wrote it together and she, she edits to make sure I don't misbehave. And it all started off because I bought a draining board. It was £46, and it's a rusty metal draining board that lives in my kitchen. It makes me smile. And Bill said, you could have bought a plastic one for £4.50. That wouldn't have made me smile. <laughs> so that's the treasure. So some things, uh, yeah, it's, um, this, is, this will be a treasure. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, a, it's probably going to be a workbox weight with scissors and things. But it's a little piece of Indian embroidery, probably 100 years old. I wouldn't sell it saying that. It's got shisha mirrors on it and, and yeah. No, it's um, anything I think classes as a treasure. I can photograph them. My son does the photography for that. Obviously, Andrea and I have a very clear understanding of what's... She's the managing director of the Cross-Stitch Guild now. And obviously, our understanding is that I in no way compete, ever. You know, I can't start Guild 2 after 10 years or anything stupid, as if I would want to. But the things I do are things she can't. Because, you know, mm. and when I stitch something, I've done quite a lot of very pretty little, um, I say pretty because when they're made up, they are little cotton reels with ribbon embroidery on them and scissors and things, just bits and pieces. And yes, it's nice. It gives me a, a day with my son. You know, he comes to me officially, mates rates, but commercially. <laughs> and, uh, and everything's photographed without props. You'll see when you look at the site, I've got squares of fabric that are sort of my colours and they're just plunked in the middle and photographed. Whereas the Cross Stitch Guild is very much in sets, you know, with maybe me in the background and, and yeah, so we keep it keep it very different. It's quite an evolution because I always remember when we would be at the knitting and stitching show and I would come and see you. A, to say hello, also to score some gold needles because you're always like my, my gold needle. Honestly, if you haven't used gold tapestry needles, you're missing out. It's the best. Absolutely. Get some of those from Jane, like a little deal on the side. <laughs> but your your stalls were always, you know, here's the kits, here's the stitch samples. But it was also very like trinket heavy. You know, the treasures were already there. So it makes sense that you've kind of peeled that away and set it up separately. Yes, it's it's nice. And also the other thing that's occurred, which again was an evolutionary thing really, was obviously things go out of the range of the Guild or aren't really things that they were ideal in a magazine with a story but don't stand alone. And so the last time but one that I came back from visiting Andrea and spending a night over there and raiding the shop and so on, she filled my car. I had a little Fiat then. She filled it with ex-work models. I mean, I couldn't get my case in easily. And so I can turn those into things. Sometimes I have no idea what I'm going to do with them. Sometimes they go to a lovely girl called Kate Bowles who makes most beautiful books. And 
all the ones she's made me recently have sold since, but she makes hand, beautiful handmade books. And I haven't even got one to show you, which is appalling. But she will cut up embroideries under pressure wow. and turn them into the most beautiful journals. I mean, it's just, isn't that funny? Now, she came to see me at Knitting and Stitching at Harrogate many years ago and bought some linen band. And I said, what are you going to use it for? Well, I make books. And she showed me hers, which was really scruffy, full of bits of fabric and thread and scribblings. And um, so we've worked together since. So it's been very fortunate. We often talk about how the value of something that's handmade goes up and down and up and down, depending on the century you're in. I know Jamie and I both feel that the more people we talk to, that the love of and the value of handmade is back on the up. I'm, I'm, I'm certain, yes. Yes, I'm sure it is. There's two sides, isn't there? There's the day I was in a shop full of hardanger in Bergen and the proprietor gave me a piece of hardanger embroidery that I suppose was five inches square and it was over a thousand pounds to buy. Wow. <laughs> and rightly so. But then you see people who've done beautiful cross stitches and put them on eBay and they struggle mm. to get a fiver. There's two sides, isn't there? Mm. There's handcrafted things that fetch amazing monies. Obviously, there's a band sampler has now sold for over a million dollars in America. So, yes, yeah, 16th century. No, it wasn't. It was 17th century, early 17th century band sampler in fantastic. I mean, it was a fantastic museum quality piece of history and in fantastic condition and, and many, many techniques used and so on and so on. But even so, that started and the fact that the, the old sampler stitched by women generally. I'm not being unkind to chaps, but most were stitched by women in that time, can fetch extraordinary amounts of money. And yet somebody can, you know, I've got various chums, one in particular I think of, who has worked on the well, I think it's the Well Wishes charity, where they're constructing wells in Africa. Okay. And basically it's a roundabout for the children. And as they play on it, it pumps water. Wow. It's the, it's the well something. Now, she decided she would have a well built, and she raised money with her crafts. Now, this lady is an ex-director of John Lewis, so she's, you know, bright, bright brummy. And she has done crochet, done knitting, and cross-stitch cards to sell. But they sell very cheaply, mm. don't they, for the hours of work. It's that weird conflict between like handmade clothes and bespoke clothes. Yes. It's that thing, isn't it? Yes. And what people will pay for a piece of badly constructed, based on plastic clothing. Mm. And well, I mean, we can go on and on about the fa fast fashion, can't we? Mm. I mean, I, as you can tell, I crumple easily because I'm linen based. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I joke about the fact I spend my life clutching a steam iron, but I wear linen. We don't now, I don't think we have for six or seven months now, bought anything with polyester in it. Right. We're buying cotton or linen. Yeah. It's a nod to not using petrol, obviously, and it's a nod to the people who grow it because they can keep growing it, can't they? Mm. It isn't going to run out. But I like linen. Um, ladies of a certain age find it very comforting 
Apparently, it can absorb twice its weight in water before it feels wet. <laughs> Which, based on having hot flushes, you can imagine it's a jolly useful thing to have. You know, I was reading something the other day, and it's about Tudor people. We were, I was reading something about the fact about sort of personal hygiene in the past. Yes. Yes. And there was, the, you know, this sort of the, the usual assumption that everybody did smell horrible in centuries gone by, and I'm sure they did. But the Tudors apparently were very, very fastidious about their personal hygiene in the sense that they used to wear linen under everything. Mm. And so if you had your sort of linen shifts, you wouldn't be seen dead with a grubby linen shift. So you, okay, you didn't have commercial antiperspirants and deodorants, but you changed your shift frequently. And so the linen would absorb all sorts and then you'd just have that switched out. So you wear a, a fresh linen thing all the time and have those washed and obviously your clothes went over the top of the linen. So the linen did the job. Linen did the job. Yeah. And I've watched I've watched women in India and in Africa doing their washing on the rocks at the riverside, you know, and I just think, you know, how fortunate am I? Not to have to do that, but the school children's shirts are white. Mm, yeah, those kids going off to school in Lake Titicara, can you believe, in a little rowboat in white shirts? They would have made a Purcell advert. Yeah, quite extraordinary. Yes, with with absolutely yeah. no chemicals in sight. So you also you kind of favour linen for your designs as well, isn't it? Linen is a strong theme, and one thing. Like, you've got a certain aesthetic, I would say. I remember when I invited you to take part in my magazine and I was trying to be like, yeah, it's all revolutionary and stuff. And in some ways you felt there was a bit of a struggle because it was a, a difference between yes. your aesthetic and what I was aiming at. No, but we still made it because the ultimate revolution is to keep things exactly the same and stuff. Did you find that your your taste appeared? Like, as as the more designing you did, did you find a comfortable style? Did that come quite quickly? Yes, I think so. I think it did. There are things that I can't do. I can't draw, and I'm not going to try anymore. People's faces and things. I mean, I'm not an artist. You know, if you gave me a piece of blank paper, I can't draw on it. I need the squares. It's a comfort blanket somehow. And I sort of, I occasionally try to break out of what I do. And I know that at one stage, I can think of an example where I handed out the project for a cross-stitch girl weekend and someone said, oh, I've seen that flower before. Well, they hadn't seen that flower before. I'd just drawn it the week before and I knew I had. But the style is obviously of a type and that's why I am encouraging, not wishing to shoot myself in the foot here, but persuading Andrea and Jenny that they need other designers in the cross-stitch girl magazine. Mm. Now, you don't want to rock the boat, and our clientele are obviously of, that's what they like, otherwise they wouldn't still be members. But it is a question of, if the Guild's going to continue ad infinitum, then obviously they're going to need somebody else other than me. And it's introducing things that don't frighten the horses, really, a little bit. Mm. So I, I sort of do what I do. And I, funny enough, I had a request for a design from an American magazine Having said to them that I wouldn't, I couldn't and wouldn't do their calendar again, I basically said I'm retired now and I do what I want to do. They promptly came back with something I probably would want to do. <laughs> and, and that was a bit irritating. And 
that's about I can't really break out of what I do now. It's, I've been doing it too long. You know, it feels uncomfortable, probably. I note I note by uh, if you put your name into Amazon, I counted 24 different cross-stitch books available in your repertoire. And it's quite to the point you were saying before about one person's trinket is something else. Some of the books are available for about a penny. But then there are other books that are available. There's one that's available for £297. <laughs> so it just goes to show us if ever there was proof of the point you were making a minute ago about the concept of value. Absolutely. I mean, that's a massive collection, isn't it? You must have really had a good flow of pattern making, book producing. I mean, we're talking sort of in the 90s and the 2000s was the real prime time. Yes. I mean, when Cross Stitch was at its, if you like, well, if we... There's things that happen that obviously things have that period of time when they will boom and it may boom again. But of course, there was no internet. So there were no free charts to get online. And so people had to buy things. So there was a, an enormous market. I can remember doing the first needlecraft fair at the Design Centre Islington. And our stand was a foot smaller all the way around by the time everyone left because we had flat tabletops on trestles. And the crush was so great <laughs> that, you know, we couldn't get out. There were thousands of people, and we were constantly taking money, constantly, constantly taking money, because there hadn't been anything like it before. Mm. And of course, there's a lot of it now. So there's all sorts of things, isn't there? There's finding the stuff. There's needlecraft shops opening around the country. My husband was my rep, love him, for many years, and he trailed all over UK and Wales and Scotland selling our wares. And he stopped. One of the reasons he stopped was the drives between the shops got longer and longer because, obviously, people closed, Hobbycraft appeared, and it would mm. have closed maybe 20 shops, effectively. And, of course, the internet and so on and so on. So... I can't remember what the question was. I'm so sorry. No, no, no. It's more just like like reflecting on that period of time because I think the thing is, you know, from my standpoint, so I got into stitching mm. 2003, mm. you're already such an established person. You know, there's people like you, Joe Versa, all these people who are familiar names. Yes. And you were like... I was thinking you were like the Rat Pack, but in a very different context <laughs> and a very different style. But do you know what I mean? There's these names, Susan Bates, there's people whose names are kind of like really known. Synonymous um, with things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and I just think that's fascinating because, like you say, the world of cross-stitch is very different now. And obviously, I'm at the forefront of the new cross-stitch revival. Of course you are. <laughs> but but it's, it's just not the same. And so I just wanted to, you to reflect on that, really, and to, you know, like you say, talk us through the massive hordes and, you know, those kind of... It was a phenomenon. I can, and I can remember when Joe was involved in a cross-stitch magazine. I've actually forgotten the title of it now. It wasn't cross-stitch crazy, was it? Yes, it was. It was cross-stitch crazy. And Joe worked for them for quite a long time. And the queue was just to the end of the hall, Olympia, to meet her and, and um, have their magazine signed and so on. I mean, she was an extremely bright lady, my word. Yes, I had the worst hangover in my life after a dinner party at hers. <laughs> That's my claim to fame, bless her. That's crusty, she's rock and roll people. She, absolutely. Goodness gracious me. And I mean, she was a single parent. And her girls were lovely, lovely girls. Still we went for a dinner and she did, did, did posh dinner 
for 12, which is pretty impressive stuff, not having anyone, you know, in the background. And then in the morning, she took me up to her studio in the roof to show me a cross-stitch programme because she'd been working with sticky coloured papers and had met Ian. How he managed to meet her was rather fun because he was at an exhibition. I'm not sure where now, but he had one of her designs on the screen. And she walked onto the stand and said, I think you should have asked for permission to use that. <laughs> and he said, I didn't know any other way to get you on the stand. Oh. <laughs> and that was the beginning of a long relationship. I mean, she he designed, he, he perfected and completed the project based on what she needed because her designs were very, very outlined. You know, there were lots of fractional stitches. It was very modern, very modern designs. Because not long after this, she rang me and she said, you need to come and play with this. Because there I am, where, as I said, the worst hangover known to man, concentrating on a television. <laughs> Bless her. Anyway, yes, so the rest is history, really. Mm. And then the Cross Stitch Guild formed when? 1996. The date it started was the 16th of March, 1996. And it had started as a direct result I was at the knitting and stitching show at Harrogate and a lady of, of, I don't know, mature years came onto our exhibition stand crying. Oh. And I said, oh, my Lord, you know, got her a chair or a stool, actually. And I said, I'm so, what can I do? Can I get you a drink of water? No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I said, well, you're obviously not fine. I said, well, I've just been to another stand and they said my cross-stitch wasn't really embroidered. What? And I was leaving the stand to go and dong somebody, actually. Um, <laughs> when my husband grabbed me and said, we'll fight this our way, shall we? So that was the day that I decided we'd have a guild of our own. Mm. You can embellish a story, you can embroider a story. Embroidery, you know, embroidery is what it is. It's decorating something. Is there, I was just going to say, within the world of... Uh... Yarn craft, there is always, I mean, it's, it's less so now, but there has always been that sort of friction between knitters and crocheters to see whether knitting or crochet is more technical or more difficult or more worthy or more, you know, what rubbish really. So does the same exist between cross-stitch and embroidery? I think that there is certainly a less so now probably, but I can remember Andrew Salmon who was one of the beginners with the Knitting Stitching Show. He owned it. And he and I had had a bit of a run-in. <laughs> and a solicitor's letter had been sent to him. So we weren't in talking, really. Anyway, at some point, he contacted me and said, water under bridge, you know, conversation. So I gave in and he actually said, he wanted me to be his Trojan horse. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I want you to come and get cross-stitches into Knitting and Stitching. Now, so Knitting and Stitching Show was seen as canvas work, tapestry, and knitting and free embroidery. And cross-stitch wasn't really the sort of thing you did. That was exactly what happened. So, in fact, that's what happened. I, we went, the cross-stitch girl went. I wasn't there as me. I was there as the cross-stitch girl. And the cross-stitch girl has exhibited with them ever since. So there has been a certain something, isn't there, about... I can't really explain it, you know. Things like Elizabeth Bradley cushions and designers' forum cushions. I mean, they're beautiful, the furnishings. 
And then if you want to compare a little duck with a bow under his chin done in cross stitch, yes, of course, there's a difference. And, and rightly so. You know, it, all of this is supposed to be fun and for everybody. And it makes me very, very cross when people get elitist about it. It's just rubbish. Mm. I like to go and do talks at embroideries guilds available for hire if anybody's listening and it's always nice to stand at the front and go so who does cross stitch and just watch sometimes like sheepish hands go up yes. you know what I mean like people are a little bit apologetic and I'm like yes don't be doing that because it's like it's it's an enabler like cross stitch to me is a, I call it a gateway drug uh, not gateway drug sorry a gateway craft yes. because you start with cross stitch and you move on to harder crafts or not or not. Or not, yeah, yeah, totally. You know, it, it does make me wild, actually. And, of course, when I used to do talks <laughs> to cross-stitch girls, this, I just, just, I love this. I did, it was a big event where a few cross-stitch girls got to, sorry, a few guilds got together, and I did a class for a lot of people, a talk on the Friday night, a class on the Saturday, and then came home and stayed over. And I stood up at the talk and said, of course, you must accept I am a kit manufacturer. And there was definitely a... <laughs> but they all wanted the materials packed the next day. Of course they did. And the thing is, as well, I, of, I often think, you know, we've spoken to some incredible cross-stitchers on, over time on this podcast. And it really just reminds me so much of painting, you know. And I feel when you think of the colour and the, the gradients of colour that you can build into things, and you're painting with colour, it just so happens that it's a cross-stitch that you're using, but the detail and the level of detail is incredible. Yes, yes. Which often doesn't happen with embroidery. You know, you embroidery, you're embroidering specific things, but you can paint with cross-stitch, can't you? I mean, Yes, you can. You can. And the other things that I say to people when I'm doing sewing streets, etc., is the other thing that's so wonderful about County Cross Stitch is the fabrics blank. Now, I know the feeling when you first look at it, you think, Ooh, but because it's blank, you can do what you want. And I'm always thrilled to bits when we do show and tell, or bring and brag, as it's called, at Cross Stitch Girl weekends, and we have 50 or 60 people staying for the weekend. Six trestle tables are up, and people bring things to show. Sometimes it's old samplers they've found. Sometimes it's work they've done. And I'll see a dozen or so of my things, but they've been changed. They've done mm. their own thing. Marvellous. Now, if there was a transfer on the fabric, you couldn't. Mm. You'd be stuck with it. So, yeah, let's, let's stop being snooty about it. It does make me wild. The other thing about cross-stitch, and I think it's particularly true of cross-stitch, there is something very valuable about having something that is constructed in such a way that you have to concentrate a bit. I mean, some cross-stitch designs, you have to concentrate on an extreme amount. But you have to concentrate on how many stitches you're doing, etc., and keeping the stitches looking beautiful and facing the right way and so on and so on. But if you're stressed or very worried about something, you can absolutely lose yourself in counter cross-stitch. Mm. And I've said it hundreds of times, the mindfulness thing, that, you know, colouring in pictures, etc., it's only a way of taking your mind off what's in there causing the stress and creating something pretty at the same time. So I think as far as in a mindfulness way, I think cross-stitch is absolutely difficult to beat. I think, yes, I think you're right. I, I really do. Because it's, it's a bit, I always think um, it's like there are sort of hobbies that you have where you totally relax because you can't think about anything else. So like if I swim, 
I can only think about swimming when right. I'm swimming. <laughs> and if I'm riding a horse, I can only think about riding. About my focus is complete. And I think it's the same with so many of our beloved crafts that we yes. love, that you are in the same boat. I know for me, charts, charts just scare me to death <laughs> because I said this to Jamie, I can't, the action of going from chart to work, from chart to work, really scares me. I yes. find that really... Which as, and as a knitter, you don't. No. As a knitter, not, you don't. Yeah. Not unless you're actually working on a repeat or a, or a picture. And I find that really hard, but I'm determined to master it for the sake of... <laughs> for the sake of cross-stitch, for creating beautiful pictures, because that's what you do, you're painting. Yes. You have the freedom... I it just I love when you see a cross stitch design and the range of colours that are available to you to use. It's mind blowing. As a knitter, you know you you just you're sticking to you know only a, a yarn might have I don't know twenty five shades in a range, and then you look at cross stitch threads of you know embroidery thread, and you've got hundreds of shades, hundreds and hundreds, hundreds and hundreds. Yes, I mean I've got. <laughs> Yeah, sorry, I'm just getting a tissue. It's been what gets remarkable is you get these designs like heaven and earth designs that people, particularly interestingly, in like countries like Russia, places like that where the winters are cold and the nights are dark and stuff, they love epic sized cross stitch. The kind of things you you'll see some people that have done heaven and earth designs and they'd be like, So I've been doing this every day for 15 years and I've just finished, and it's just like some huge piece. And that's where you get you get that full, like fully coloured, fully yeah, fully covered, like just gradiated colours. It's kind yes. of magnificent what's possible, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. if you want to go down that route. But the thing that I love, and the thing that you know, one of the things that started me off in the first days was finding books like yours, finding books like Joe's, and almost like remixing the designs, putting things together in ways that suited me. Because I think like cross stitch samplers were a teaching aid back when needlecraft was taught at schools but they also are a perfect opportunity to immortalize a moment in time yes. and because they combine words and symbols it's almost like you can make like a an instruction do you know what i mean it's like there's you're not painting a picture you're putting words and symbols together to immortalize your family or whatever it is so it gives you that it's like an infographic i guess yes yes it's it's, it's a lovely thing when I started, at some point, my mother did one. I did one for her, and we'd had this enormous stroke of luck. I'd, I'd, I pulled a fast one on my husband, okay, because he didn't want to deal with London shops. You know, Harrods and these places, you know, have a poor reputation for paying their suppliers, and he wasn't interested in that. Now, I have always had a passion for liberty. Oh, absolutely. All right. Now, I'd been there as a 12-year-old uh, on a school trip, and I stood in one of the open areas looking up and the smell and the building. I'm, I'm coming out in goosebumps. <laughs> and I wanted to sell in there. And I was going to my father's 60th birthday. I couldn't tell you what year that was. And it meant changing trains in London. So I rang the buyer. Now, this is one of the things in my life that you see, you just don't, you can't believe. I asked to speak to the needlework buyer and she picked up her phone. One. She never picked up her phone. I said, I would be able to spare you a few minutes. Can you imagine? <laughs> because I'm changing trains in London. I'm on my way to Kent. 
and I could show you my range of cross-stitch designs. Now, she didn't say, well, I'm sorry, I can't spare you any minutes or anything. She said, yes, all right, come and see me. Her name was Amanda Sherwin. I had, my case had a smart skirt and a smart top in it, not covered in child vomit. You know what it's like when you leave a house <laughs> saying goodbye to your children. And I left my luggage at the station and I went to Liberty by Chew, which was very exciting. I'm not a London person. And I all I said to myself as I was going up the stairs, I'm going in past the sign marked private. You know, this is not going to happen, but it will be interesting. And I did go past the sign and go to her office. And she said, well, I'm interested. I'm interested. But there will be one condition. And she said, um, I want you to do the design of the building. Come on. She dragged me across the road to look at the Liberty Building. Oh, how divine. And I said, well, yes, but actually, if we did the whole building, it's going to be an enormous project. And who's going to buy it? I think you should do a sampler with part of the Liberty Building and the clock on it. It's actually on my wall in my office now. And she said, all right, let me have a drawing. So I went off to my father's, not wanting to go to this birthday thing at all. Just wanted to go home and draw this building. Anyway. As a result of that, the shop decided that when we launched the thing, we'd have a bring your bring a picture of your house and Jane would put it on a sampler for you. Well, of course, how many people do you know walking around with a picture of their house in their handbag? <laughs> but I was going to be in the store for the day on the Tuesday and you're going to fill it, fill it all in and I was going to have a picture of your house and you're going to get a chart with your house two initials and the name of your house in a little garland at the bottom and a set of alphabets. Right? On the Saturday morning, the phone rang. Hello, it's Lutu van der Post here from the Financial Times. And I said, oh, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> she said, I'm a very busy woman, Mrs. Greenall. I said, oh, you are Lutu van der Post from the Financial Times. She said, yes, I'm, I'm writing a piece for the How to Spend It page that goes in tomorrow. And we've had something from the press office about your super idea to put a house on a sampler. And we'd like it for our readers as well, please. What do we need to do? <laughs> so I'm, you know, feeding a child with a Yankee soldier and thinking. And it was agreed that they would send details to our house. So when I got to Liberty on the Tuesday, the queue went from the needlework department to the lifts. <laughs> how, did you, how did you manage to get them all done? Well, I mean, I sat there all day and the staff, you know, sales staff were running backwards and forwards, photocopying order forms so I could take everything given home. We didn't, yeah. Well, I worked on the drawing board. By then it was in a bedroom upstairs on a gate leg table and there was a spare bed there. And I don't know how many houses we did. I genuinely don't. Hundreds. Varying from a semi-D on an estate to Spanish castles. It's how I met the chairman of the Royal Royce, going back to that. <laughs> and I would, I had a template with the, the, the alphabet, the trees, the garland, and I would incorporate the colours from the house into the alphabet, the trees and the garland. And Bill has an eye, and he can centre a word by eye. So he would put on the initials and the name of the house while I slept on the spare bed. And I'd get up and put the house on. And one day he said, oh, my Lord, look who this is. And I'm looking with one eye open. And it was Alan Wicker. 
Do you remember Alan Wicker? Oh, Alan Wicker, Wicker's <laughs> yeah. World. Wicker's World. <clears throat> and he was in the foreground on a lilo in the pool with a glass of champagne like this. And it's his long-time lady who was having the house done for him. And do you know what was extraordinary? It was years later, I'm at the dentist in Fairford, and I pick up a loan magazine, you know, like you do. And there's Alan Wicker at his desk with the sampler stitched on the front. Oh, how lovely. Love it. Fab. Fab. So, I said, so we go... Go on, sorry. No, so, no, I was just going to say, when Jamie and I were talking before you appeared this morning and um, about Liberty and, and he said well you know Liberty is just another shop I said no Liberty is not just <laughs> another shop so if anybody's listening we're, we're talking to you from the UK as you know as you will have gleaned but Liberty if you haven't been to London and I'm sure not everybody has been and visited Liberty but it is the most extraordinary shop and it's not just a shop do you think Jane? No, it's not just a shop. It's also true to say, I think, that it will have changed a lot in the years since. I mean, I dealt with them continuously for over 25 years, and Coates and DMC haven't done that. So I was well chuffed with myself. I bought myself a Liberty mug as a souvenir when I'd done 25 years with them, unbroken supplying. And I did them London buses and phone boxes, and, you know, they had 57 of our mini kits in racks. And visitors who weren't going to get outside London were buying Stonehenge, Hampton Court, and pretending they'd been there. <laughs> anyway, yes, I mean, it was, uh, it, it was a phenomenon. And also, I mean, it was still family, the family was still involved. Mr. Richard and I were caught having a cigarette on the bridge. Mr. Richard Liberty, we were having a fire <laughs> out of the window. And it was absolutely verboten to smoke in that building. Good grief. And we were given such a ticking off from the floor manager. So, yeah, it was very much still. I mean, you didn't have, when you got an order there, there wasn't an order number. You just put the date on it. Well, you know, these things have changed. And, I mean, I was incredibly fortunate Amanda hadn't gone for an early lunch, you know, because that wouldn't have happened. And because we were in Liberty, I was approached by David and Charles, the publishers, would I be interested in doing a book? Because I was in Liberty, we got our American distributors because they shopped in Liberties and sold the stuff. So it's all sorts of things, isn't it, mixed up in it. We were filmed there. There was a series of little programmes. I think it was on Pebble Mill in the days when there was a lunchtime programme. Does that ring bells with you, Marion? And there was something called Wall Strand. I did two or three little bits of telly in the store when I had a little mini exhibition going on and a book for book. And, it, you know, it, it was funny doing those demonstrations. You went up, you, you were there for the day for nothing. You didn't even get the train fare. But I didn't mind. You know, I, my head organised. That's what I was doing. I took stitching. I would check the stock. I also took a duster and some pledge because the, the windows would be open in Liberty and dust comes in. So I would clean all the fronts of my kits, change the bags of the ones that were tatty, and then I would sit and demonstrate and get people started, you know. And it was all sorts of things. One lady rushed in and said, OK, could I help? She was very definitely looking as if anyone was watching. Can I show you something? I said, yes, I can. What is it? And she said, it's, it's a little bit of stitching off the front of Needlecraft magazine. I want to know if I've done it right. I said, yes, you have done it right. Well done. Right, she said. She went off with a basket. Now, she wouldn't have gone into a needlework shop because she wouldn't have wanted to look a fool. 
but she could pick it up in a WH Smith's or wherever they were being sold, do the thing in the privacy of her own home, and then move on. Isn't it? It's interesting, isn't it? Because she would not have been in that position if they didn't have kits on the front. The other thing I knew was where you could get your VAT back, where the ladies were, and which floor had the best cakes. Because people, <laughs> and, and people would say to me, cool, I'd like a job like yours, just sitting in Liberty Stitching all day. And I wanted to say, yeah, I bet you would. <laughs> but never mind. Anyway. Halcyon days, halcyon days. I think that's a great place. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great place. I think there's, it's a shame that those days won't ever be the same again. You know, I think it must have been amazing to be in this. And like you say, people didn't have, I mean, there were plenty of crafts and all those sorts of things, but the distractions that we have in this day and age are so much more manifold. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, I think I'm still fascinated how lockdown drove people to handcrafts. And I guess that shows us that the dream is still alive in that respect. Oh, it's very I mean, much so. Somewhere you need to capture more of these anecdotes, I think. I think there needs to be some kind of biography or something, you know, because I think those tales need to be told. Do you know what I mean? No, but when you're talking about like going for dinner with the guy from Rolls Royce and you're saying about, you know, these various things that have happened and the fact that you've effectively toured the world off the back of cross stitch as well. Yes. Yeah. I think that, you know, those things need to be immortalized somehow. It's a it's a funny thing you should say that. <laughs> I will tell you the other bit of the story about Rolls Royce in a minute, but Jenny Dixon would like me to do a book. And she wants it to be called Following a Thread. Very nice. And having a thread running from the front where there'll be something pretty with the thread and the thread ends up at the very end. And yes, it would. I, I'm sure I could. And you know she's right. And I know she's probably right. And I've got enough fans to probably pay for the print run. <laughs> because, you know, it's a... It's a but yes, it's, it is something that um, might happen. I just don't know when. I think with these things... You know, just keeping notes as you go along every time you remember things is is a great start. And then when you finally decide to hit the ground running, you've got them all written away beautifully in one of those notebooks, a little sort of... One of those lovely notebooks. Of those hand handmade books. Yes, I've got to keep. Yes, it'd be an interesting thing to do. I'm doing a talk at the Great British Sampler Weekend coming up in the autumn in the UK. I know quite a lot of people from America are coming over for this. And I've been asked to talk about my journey through embroidery, which I find that these days everyone does a journey, don't they? It's, it's, a, it's a funny old world, isn't it, really? And I suspect some of these anecdotes will find their way into that conversation. It's also about the Guild. Uh, Andrea made it quite clear she wasn't standing up in front of 160 people and talking to anybody, so uh, I have volunteered. For anybody listening, we will put the details of these events into the show notes. I'm sure that so many listeners would love to be able to find out more. Yes. Um, and indeed, obviously, links to your website and to the treasures. Thank you. And all the books. Oh, my word, um, the books. Honestly, it's Jane, to me, like Jane Greenoff's At Home with Cross Stitch, which I can't, I'm trying to work out when it came out. I'll see if I can find out. I can't tell you. No, it came out in 1994, At Home with Cross Stitch. To me, that's like the epic moment, you know, that's you there. It is about as 90s as is humanly possible for Cross Stitch yes, to be. Yes, absolutely. But it, it's, to me, it's like one of those golden moments. There's a book called Rosie Greer's Needlepoint for Men, similar sort of thing from the 70s. To me, that is a, that is a, and I mean, I'm I've got my cross stitches Bible in my hands here. You know, 
I've got first edition. One day, my dear, you've got to sign this to me. Dear Mr. X, thanks for everything. <laughs> dear Mr. X, none of this would have been possible without you. But I think people owe it to themselves. If they've got any interest in cross-stitch, I think they owe it to themselves to have a piece of your library in their collection, without a doubt. And it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so grateful you took the time to join us on the Lovecraft Show. Tell us a few tales and stuff. You know I've got a lot of time and love for you guys as a collective as well. Well, I it's been a gorgeous gorgeous morning of listening to all these fantastic stories i'm thrilled to bits thank you so much for jane for coming to talk to us that's all right it's been lovely well that's left me completely flawed i don't know about you but what an extraordinary woman jane greenoff is yeah and what if i've got any regrets from that conversation it's just i feel like she was really warming into some quality anecdotes i feel like if we'd have had if we weren't recording this in the morning so that we could have had a glass of wine each and a bit longer time (laughs) i think we would have got a whole heap more stories out of her because jane's like i say she's she was just there at the time when cross stitch was a real thing you know there were a whole bunch of designers who you know we look back from the past now and you see these books in charity shops and there's a bit of a maybe a bit of a joke about that but you see so many of them because there were so many of them because it really was like this big thing that probably put cross stitch into a context that it's still there now and jane was there she was like the queen of it all it's amazing it's just and also i think to understand how you know cross stitch design was created and from that you know where it is now with the with the technology that goes with all of that yeah i just found that absolutely fascinating and it's it's reinvigorated me to try and battle my fear of charts and get back to some stitching i love that i love that we have yet to have an episode of the love crochet despite how brilliant they've all been where i've gone right i'm definitely going to battle crochet i love the fact that you're still willing and i'm still like no no there's a hard no everybody i'm gonna stick there. listen we'll get you in the end i'm gonna get you in the end i know that one day there will be a gunmetal gray poncho in my life at some point but whether i make it or not is a uh, another matter well i think that could be a job for your mama So as usual, lovely listeners, if you'd like to tell us all about what you thought of the show or if there are some guests you'd love us to chat to, you can email us at show at lovecrafts.com. You can write a letter in a paper plane and throw it into the air and knowing full well that it will eventually land at Lovecraft Show HQ or probably a simple way to let us know how you feel. Leave us a review on your favourite podcasting platform, Apple uh, Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Apple, Apple Podcasts, podcast, Orange Podcasts, wherever you get them, Pear Podcasts, <laughs> any of your fruity podcasts. Uh, leave us a review because obviously we love making this show. We hope that you enjoy it, and that's the best way to let other people find it. So leave us a review, much appreciated. My name's Mister X Stitch, and I'm Marion. Thanks for joining us on the Lovecraft Show. We'll see you next time. Take care now. Bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> Hello everybody, Ralph here. Now a lot of you probably don't know, but back in the day, I represented Liechtenstein in the modern pentathlon. I tell you, it's a useful skill set, you know, because in the eventual outbreak of the zombie apocalypse, the fact that I can do fencing, swimming, horse riding, cross-country running and pistol shooting puts me at a natural advantage to the rest of you catch potatoes. But I don't want to gloat. As part of my research into how to survive a post-apocalyptic wasteland, I learned that not only is the modern pentathlon ideal, 
But subscribing to the Lovecraft show is also going to sort you out. So if you want to do better by your fellow man, woman, child or vegetable, please leave a review of the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. Because, you know, the more people that know, the more people are going to survive the outbreak. Thanks, everybody. Now I've got to go and put some grease on. About to go swim in a river. Layers.